Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Curbside Consults, one of the podcast series of the New England Journal of Medicine, NEJM Group. I'm Clem, a senior editorial fellow this year. And today I have the pleasure of interviewing Susan Calcaterra, Associate Professor of Medicine, Director of the Addiction Medicine Consult Liaison Service, and Associate Program Director of the Addiction Medicine Fellowship at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. She's one of the authors on the SHM, Society of Hospital Medicine's new 2022 guidelines on the management of opiate use disorder in hospitalized adults. Dr. Calcaterra, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We like to give the listeners a glimpse into the process of guideline creations in different societies. Can you just talk a little bit about the SHM and how that is done there? So the Society of Hospital Medicine is really intended for hospitalists. It includes physicians, APPs, NPs, people that primarily work in the hospital setting. SHM supports a number of special interest groups. One of them is the Substance Use Disorder Special Interest Group, of which I'm a member. As part of our group, we meet quarterly and we talk about issues that we think are important for hospitalists when they're managing patients with substance use disorder. And with the increasing number of hospitalized patients with opioid use disorder, typically hospitalized related to the consequences of opioid use disorder, maybe it's endocarditis or cellulitis, we thought it was important that we develop a consensus statement that described best practices for managing patients with opioid use disorder in the hospital setting. So we did a systematic review of the literature. I met with a librarian scientist to develop search terms. And with that process, we identified a number of guidelines that met inclusion criteria, which we decided needed to include guidelines that covered outpatient practice, emergency room practice setting, and general medical setting practices. And then once we came up with the statements that we thought were reflective of both the systematic review and the existing evidence, and also our expertise as a group, we then sent those statements out to SHM members, as well as experts in other areas, including addiction psychiatry, pain management, society of general internal medicine. And we got feedback as well from people in recovery and people with lived experience. And using that feedback, then we refined the the statements again. We wrote up the manuscripts and then we submitted it for peer review to SHM. And the two resulting documents are both the results of the systematic review which includes the quality of evidence. So for each of the 19 guidelines that we reviewed, and then the consensus statement is then of course, the statements that we developed informed by the systematic review. Great, thank you for that in-depth look into the guideline process. And definitely thank you guys for putting in all this work to help us take better care of these patients with substance use disorders. At least anecdotally, I'm seeing a lot more of these patients in the hospital setting. I don't know if that rings true for a lot of other people, but I think that these will be very helpful for our clinicians. So let's dive right into the consensus statements. The first one addresses sort of the terminology around a person who use drugs. Can you expand on this recommendation and sort of tell us what terms we should be using and how we should address these people? Yeah. So people who use drugs, we know that they've been stigmatized significantly in healthcare based on the literature. I think they're stigmatized by the greater society. And there's also stigma among people who use substances. People who use substances will talk about sort of a hierarchy of substance use among others. And so we also know that when people experience stigma, they're less likely to seek care in the healthcare system. And so it's important to think about that when you interact with a person, treating them with empathy, um, treating them as a whole person, not as their substance use. 
the other thing that's really important to think about is we need to use medical terminology when we write in the chart and when we talk about our patients, because if you have the correct medical terminology, then you know how to correctly treat the patient. So for instance, we talk about the use of person-first language, that's putting the person before their substance. So a person with opioid use disorder or a person who uses drugs is preferable to saying injection drug user or addict. The other thing is a lot of the words that we've sometimes seen in the medical records are not medical terms. And so what does that mean in terms of their clinical diagnosis? I think that when we use a medical term, especially when we use the DSM-5 criteria, so for instance, opioid use disorder, mild, moderate, or severe, it helps us know what the correct treatment interventions are. And it can also help us to talk through with the patient about where they may be best suited for ongoing treatment of their substance use. Yeah, I totally agree. And since you brought up the DSM, what does the DSM say about opiate use disorder and how we diagnose it? Obviously, not every person who uses opiates has an opiate use disorder. The DSM-5 criteria is what we currently use to diagnose any substance use disorder. And the way that the DSM-5 categorizes any substance use disorder, as I previously alluded to, is mild, moderate, severe. And the distinction is how many of the criteria does the patient have when making that diagnosis. And I think it's important to point out that when you're asking questions about the severity of their use, you don't have to sit down and ask every single question. But a lot of the information can be ascertained in a normal history and physical exam. So for instance, if a patient's coming into the hospital with endocarditis, say from injecting a substance, so fentanyl, for example, we already know that the patient meets criteria for causing harm to themselves for their substance use, which makes it, that's one criteria. We don't even have to ask them. We can ascertain that from their diagnosis. If you see a patient experiencing opioid withdrawal in the hospital, well, then you know they meet another criteria. They have physical dependence and withdrawal. And so I want people to know that most of the time we elicit this information when we talk to the patient taking a history and physical exam um, and making the diagnosis, especially among hospitalized patients who hospitalized patients with substance use disorder that are there as a consequence of their use, making the diagnosis becomes a lot easier. I do think it's a bit trickier when a patient comes in and maybe their substance use is a little bit less clear. If they meet criteria is a little less clear, maybe they're prescribed opiates by a physician and it's not clear if, if they have behaviors of unhealthy substance use or not. And that's when it can be a bit trickier and it takes a little bit more time to tease out the diagnosis. Yeah, I, I totally see what you're saying. I think amongst hospitalists, there's this very pervasive thought that, oh, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not able to diagnose this psychiatric disease unless I'm trained to do so. But I think we should empower more hospitalists to go through the DSM and sort of, as you said, it doesn't have to be laborious. A lot of this, these details are already in the chart. And, um, and then it helps us serve our patients better if they have the right labels. Yeah. So once a patient is diagnosed with an opiate use disorder, what does the consensus statement say about which lab tests that we should offer to them and why? So the consensus statement drew their recommendations from various sources, as I previously mentioned. And universally, especially for people who use substances and if they're injecting, their recommendation is to check an HIV, um, a hepatitis C. We recommend checking hepatitis B and A because if they're um, non-immune, you can offer vaccinations. We also recommend 
checking pregnancy tests because people who use substances can develop amenorrhea. And so it's important to know if they're pregnant, that's going to change how you treat the patient. I often will check a treponema antibody or quantiferin gold. This is more so if the patient has an interest in enrolling in a methadone program, oftentimes those labs are required for being enrolled. If a patient has sexual behaviors that put them at risk of chlamydia or gonorrhea, it's important to check uh, those tests as well. So our position is that you should offer these labs, you should offer these studies. The patient always has the right to refuse. The other things that we do recommend is if a patient's had an EKG during their hospitalization, and most of our patients have, it's worthwhile to review the EKG and look at the QTC to see if it's greater than 500. Um, we know that methadone at higher doses, typically 100, over 100 milligrams, increases the risk of a prolonged QTC, which can put someone in the position of developing torsades. That being said, an EKG is not necessary prior to starting methadone in the hospital. We often start methadone at lower doses that are not associated with prolonged QTs. And then with regards to checking a urine drug screen, typically the patient should have a say whether or not you check a urine drug screen. I think it shouldn't be a punitive thing. It should be something to provide you with more information. And so for instance, if a patient's thinks that they're typically using heroin and you find in the drug screen that they're using fentanyl, um, it might be worthwhile to tell the patient that, oh, actually you've been using fentanyl and this may increase your risk of overdose. And here are some techniques, harm reduction techniques that you can think about when you leave the hospital. So my concern is that people would use the information in the urine drug screen punitively. That's not the point. The point is if you do check a urine drug screen, make sure that you use that information to help with the treatment plan. Yeah, that's such a good point. I will say in my experience, I've only seen it sort of done punitively, but that's a good learning point for me too, that you could use it to find ways to um, reduce the harm for your patients, especially if they don't know that they're using a certain substance or that something is being laced with something else. We often see patients in the hospital with opiate withdrawal, whether or not that's why they're in the hospital. Can you just tell us some of the options for managing withdrawal in the inpatient setting? Absolutely. So there are no legal restrictions. So Based on 42 Federal Code of Regulation, Title 21, Section 1306.07, there are no legal limitations for using any type of opiate among hospitalized patients for the prevention of withdrawal. And this is the case for if a person's been hospitalized for a medical or surgical indication and they subsequently develop withdrawal, you can use any opioid. We recommend starting with either buprenorphine or methadone for people who have opioid withdrawal in the hospital. And the reason is basically because these two medications are very long acting. And so if you give a patient buprenorphine or methadone, and when it's adequately dosed, you're going to prevent withdrawal symptoms for 24 to 36 hours. In contrast to providing a patient with oxycodone, which has a duration of action between four to six hours, you're going to have peaks and valleys of withdrawal. And so um, we recommend starting with methadone or buprenorphine and titrating the dose based on how the patient feels. For methadone, you don't necessarily need a COWS score, which is the clinical opiate withdrawal scale, to um, titrate the dose. With methadone, you can look at the patient, talk to the patient, and titrate their dose based on what they're telling you and what you're seeing. With buprenorphine, we do recommend using the COWS score to initiate the medication, and that's because of 
the increased risk of precipitated withdrawal if you start that medicine too early, um, if the patient's not in adequate withdrawal. And then we also recommend using adjunctive medications, so clonidine, hydroxyzine, loperamide, for symptomatic control. Using non-opioid medications for opioid withdrawal management in and of itself is not sufficient and not recommended. So it's really important that we use opioid agonist therapies to treat opioid withdrawal among hospitalized patients and titrate those medications to comfort. I think one situation that I encounter a lot is a patient gets admitted perhaps at night or in the morning when their methadone clinic is not open yet. And it's hard for me to verify what methadone dosing that they were getting as an outpatient. In that situation, what do you recommend hospitalists do in terms of their methadone dosing? If they have signs or symptoms of withdrawal, then it is very, very safe to start them on methadone or buprenorphine. The way that we start methadone is informed by how methadone is started in an opioid treatment program, which people are usually familiar with as a methadone program. And so typically we would recommend starting with a one-time dose of 20 or 30 milligrams, waiting about an hour to two hours, and then reassessing the patient. If you go back and the patient still looks uncomfortable and they receive 20 milligrams, you can give them another 20 milligrams, not to exceed 40 milligrams on day one. 40 milligrams on day one is safe um, if the patient's demonstrating opioid withdrawal symptoms. And that should get you through to the morning when you can then call the methadone program and verify their last dose and dose timing, as well as the milligrams that the patient's dispensed. Right. Now let's transition to thinking about acute pain. So patients with opiate use disorders often come into the hospital for other reasons that might cause them to be in pain. For example, they have acute surgery or they have fractures, et cetera. How do we uh, think about pain in these patients and, and how do we treat it? So it depends on the, the scenario. So if a patient with opioid use disorder is maintained on buprenorphine and is on a stable dose, we recommend splitting the dose into either twice or three times daily dose of their total dose. So if the patient's on 24 milligrams a day, we would recommend dose splitting to eight milligrams three times a day. And then you treat the acute pain with full agonist short-acting opioids at about two to three times the dose that you would offer someone who was opioid night. If the patient is not on buprenorphine prior to coming into the hospital, I recommend starting methadone. I think of it as like the basal insulin dose to prevent that patient from experiencing withdrawal. And then using short-acting opioids on top of that for acute pain management at two to three times the dose. So I think it depends on the clinical scenario and what you're seeing, but it's really important that if a patient's on buprenorphine, they're on a stable dose to not decrease that dose in the perioperative period. There was actually a study that was recently just published that came out of the VA data that showed if you stop buprenorphine in the perioperative period, the risk of not getting back on that medication in the post-op period increases. And also there's an increased risk of overdose death. So important to keep that medicine on. Thanks for stressing that. I feel like in medical school, perhaps there was a different thought that just a few years ago that the buprenorphine would block any sort of positive agonist receptors and, and would not provide any pain relief if any opiate agonists were used on top of it. But I guess the feeling has changed on that, or can you just talk to, about that a little bit? So the feeling has changed in that the thought is that the opioid molecule is coming on and off the opioid receptor quickly, and it's very dynamic. It's not static. And so if you think about the presence of the buprenorphine molecule on the opioid receptor, 
it's going to stick, but it's going to come on and off. And then if you flood the opioid receptors with full agonist opioids, there will be some percentage of opioid receptors available for that short-acting opioid. If you stop the buprenorphine, then you're now creating an opioid deficit. And so if the patient has acute pain and they're experiencing withdrawal, you have to give them enough full agonist opioids to match that baseline withdrawal symptom. Remember, I talked about a basal dose of methadone just to keep them out of withdrawal. So you're having to give them a basal amount of full agonist opioids to keep them comfortable. And then on top of that, you're giving them additional full agonist opioids to manage pain. And I will say, especially with methadone, if someone comes in with an acute pain, um, say they've been in an accident and they're on methadone maintenance therapy, so they're enrolled in an OTP and say they're on 100 milligrams of methadone daily, again, that's their sort of their basal methadone dose. And so if they come in the hospital and keeping them on that methadone is imperative, but that methadone in and of itself will not cause acute pain relief. And so it's important to treat them with short, continue the methadone dose after you've verified it, and then treat them with short acting opiates at two to three times the usual dose on top of their methadone to give them adequate pain control. So again, just think about your glargine, think about your Lispro. It's a very similar idea for people with opioid use disorder who use opioids regularly and then having to have extra relief with short-acting opiates for the pain. And then, of course, using your multimodal therapies. So any non-opioid analgesic um, is important to schedule Tylenol, ibuprofen. We've been using ketamine, oral ketamine, lidocaine, et cetera. Thank you so much for explaining it in that way. I don't think I've heard it described as like insulin basal bolus, but I think that's something that most hospitalists and generalists will be familiar with. So that really does model for us. In a patient who comes in with DKA, we would never just start their home doses of insulin um, and call it a day. They require extras. I like that analogy a lot. So in these um, patients who get admitted and have history of opiate use disorder or other um, substance use disorders, what is the role of a psychiatrist or an addiction specialist or like a consult liaison service like yours? Do they need to be routinely involved? I think the management of opioid use disorder is something that we can all do. It's incredibly rewarding. Hopefully, if you follow the consensus statement, we walk you through the process. I mean, of course, there are going to be cases that are difficult and challenging, and that's when you phone a friend. But I certainly don't think that addiction medicine or addiction psychiatry trained clinician needs to be involved in the care of all hospitalized patients with opioid use disorder. Hospitalists are smart. We do pretty much everything. We know how to manage a lot of patients that have very complicated uh, clinical syndromes and adding the treatment of opioid use disorder to our list of things we should um, be able to do, I think is appropriate. And I will say very rewarding. And there's a huge capacity issue too. Like there are- Correct, yeah. With the opiate crisis, there's just so many patients out there with opiate use disorder that I don't think it's reasonable to expect all of them to have a psychiatrist in patient settings, all of them. So thinking about once these patients are stabilized from their medical conditions and we're thinking about discharging them, what are some considerations for patients with opiate use disorder? Because that is another pain point for a lot of hospitalists thinking about how they're going to transition to their methadone clinic, et cetera. So can you just speak a little bit about that? Yeah. So a lot of the decision about what medicine the patient wants to be on, it's informed by a couple of things. So first off, talking to the patient and asking them what their past experiences have been in treatment for opioid use disorder. So if a person has been on buprenorphine before and they liked it and they want to get back on it, then great. 
if a patient's been on buprenorphine before and they didn't feel like it controlled their cravings or they felt like they needed a little more structure in their life, then offering them methadone and linking them to a methadone program is, is perfectly appropriate. A couple caveats here. Methadone programs tend to be located in more urban areas. And so if a methadone program is not close by, then sending a patient off to a methadone program that's going to take two hours to get to every day is really not a feasible approach for the patient. And so the decision about what medicine to use, whether it's methadone, buprenorphine, or extended release naltrexone really comes down to resources and patient preference. In order to prescribe buprenorphine at the time of hospital discharge, it does require an ex-DEA on your DEA license. As of about, I would say, six months to a year ago, SAMHSA took away the eight-hour training requirement to get an X waiver if you're going to have less 30 or fewer active buprenorphine prescriptions. And most hospitals will never have that many active prescriptions at any given time because we're writing bridge prescriptions. And so I urge people listening to this podcast to go to the SAMHSA website. You can just Google buprenorphine waiver SAMHSA, and you can register to get your X waiver today. It takes about 10 minutes. And usually you'll get that X waiver on your license in about 60 days. So those are the factors I take into account. And then also thinking about other commonly seen conditions that go along with substance use disorder. So again, if the patient was diagnosed with hepatitis C while they were in your care, then referring them to infectious disease. If a patient has co-occurring psychiatric disorder that is driving their substance use, then of course, referring them to mental health is incredibly important. And so I think that the opportunities for helping our patients as a hospitalist are really endless. It takes a lot of help though, from your social work team, uh, your nursing team, to make sure patients have follow-up appointments and to really support the patient in the transition process. And I really want to give a huge shout out to our social workers and our case managers for working endlessly to get these patients the care that they need. One other scenario that comes up a lot is thinking about um, oral antibiotics in patients with substance use or opiate use disorder with conditions that require usually intravenous antibiotics like endocarditis or bacteremia. Can you just comment a little bit about the current status of things and if we think these patients should be eligible? So with respect to patients who have, say, endocarditis and require six weeks of antibiotics for treatment, the American Heart Association and ACA did come out with recommendations. They aren't guidelines because I think their argument was the body of literature isn't large enough yet to make full-on guidance statement, but the recommendation is to offer patients oral antibiotic treatment if the patient's not able to stay for the full six-week course. And there have been plenty of papers that show pretty compelling evidence about what oral antibiotics to send your patient out based on the culture data that, that you get in the hospital. And so I do think it's a good idea to offer your patients antibiotics, of course, ideally if IV antibiotics, but if that's not going to work for the patient, then to provide them oral antibiotics and then help them discharge safely to either ongoing treatment and follow up with infectious disease. I think any antibiotic is probably better than no antibiotics to finish their course. So right. that makes yeah. sense. We can link a bunch of these guidelines and also the uh, SAMHSA website in our show notes, just so providers can go up there and get their X waiver. Dr. Calcaterra, is there anything else you would like to expand on, on the guidelines that we haven't talked about yet? I think just remembering that a lot of people 
with substance use disorder, not all, but many people with substance use disorder have experienced trauma, significant trauma um, along the way. And so treating them with compassion, kindness, openness is really important and goes a long way. And if you do have a patient who is very, very sick with their substance use disorder and who may not have interest in stopping their substance use, talking to the patient and learning about how they use their substances. So for instance, if they use alone, maybe encouraging them to use with someone else. So if they overdose, someone else can help reverse that. Teaching them about places to inject that may be safer. And so for instance, um, I have a patient who was injecting in his neck and we talked about how that might be very harmful and lethal and to consider injecting in other locations, cleaning the skin before injecting, knowing where your needle exchange programs are and helping your patients get to those programs. It's okay for patients to make their own choices, even if it feels like those choices are harmful to them. But what we can do is we can offer them information and we can support them to use as safely as they can in their situation. I will say the other thing that's sort of been talked about increasingly is access to methadone. Uh, Methadone is really wonderful medicine. It's it's highly effective. Um, We know that when people are on methadone regularly, they have a 50% reduction in mortality from overdose. But access to methadone is really limited for people that live in rural areas and have long travel times. And so there are groups of people that have pushed moving methadone dispensing to pharmacies. So people aren't having to travel to an OTP every single day. And there are a lot of people advocating for allowing primary care providers to prescribe methadone for the treatment of opioid use disorder outside of an OTP. So thinking about access to medicines that are life-saving, how we can increase access is really important as we struggle with the opioid epidemic and these incredibly potent fentanyl analogs that are just killing our patients. It's terrifying, but we have effective medicines. We just have to get those medicines to the people who need them. Thank you. And those are all great points. And a lot of the addiction specialists that I know are people that have really advocated in the legal sphere for these changes, like the one that you described for the X waiver. And so I think for those who are inclined, continued advocacy for these patients is essential. That wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. I'd like to thank Susan Calcaterra for joining us today to discuss the latest SHM guidelines on the management of opiate use disorder in hospitalized adults. We are always looking for ways to improve our podcast and educational material. So if you have any comments or suggestions, please leave a review on iTunes or email us at resident360 at nejm.org. Our production team at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston-Perry, Kyle Simmons, Mike Thomases, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Also, a special thanks to our NEJM Education Editor, Dr. O.P. Hamnick. Curbside Consoles is brought to you by NEJM Resident 360, a product of NEJM Group.